Welcome back to the Global in the Granite State podcast. This is our second episode, and we're so excited that you've taken the opportunity to listen and learn a little bit more about what's going on in the world around you. In this episode, we will take the time to speak with the Director General of the Taipei Cultural Economic Center in Boston about U.S.-Taiwanese relationships. We will also meet with Farmers First Africa to talk about the work they are doing in the Central African Republic and other countries in Africa. We will also be taking a look at the crisis in Venezuela, the history behind it, and where we go from here. Let's take a look. The crisis in Venezuela has been raging there for more than two years. However, the groundwork for the current state of affairs was laid all the way back in 1992. This is when an idealistic, charismatic, young army officer led a coup attempt against the presidency of Carlos Andres Perez. The feeling was that the government was no longer serving the people, as austerity measures were put in place to reduce the amount of public debt the country owed. While this coup failed, in the end, it did force some changes to the country and help bring about the conviction of President Andres Perez on the crime of embezzlement from the presidential discretionary fund. Jump ahead six years and Venezuela still suffers from major economic issues, and the people of the country, particularly the poor, are looking for change. This is when Hugo Chavez steps back into the picture, winning the presidency and charting a path for the eventual takeover of the public and private sectors. There were certainly some improvements under the Chavez regime that lasted until his death in 2013, including increased access to food and medical help provided through Cuba through the Oil for Doctors program enacted in 1999. The overall freedom of the society, however, was slowly eroded over the years. Multiple changes to the Constitution were enacted under his watch, allowing him to remain in power ever longer and exert additional control over the people he was supposed to be serving. In the late 2000s, early 2010s, opposition media outlets were shuttered, oil companies were nationalized, and property rights were abridged. In the early part of this decade, things went from bad to worse. With the global price of oil dropping, the social programs that were funded by vast oil revenues were starting to lose funding. Also, the country's ability to provide basic food and services to their citizens began to fall apart, and poverty began to rise again. All of these issues began what Chavez declared as an economic war, and the Brookings Institution stated that Venezuela has really become the poster child for how the combination of corruption, economic mismanagement, and undemocratic governance can lead to widespread suffering. To give you a sense of how dire the situation was when protests started in 2017, the contraction of the national and per capita GDPs in Venezuela between 2013 and 2017 was more severe than that of the United States during the Great Depression, or of Russia, Cuba, and Albania following the collapse of the Soviet Union. After Chavez's death in 2013, Nicolas Maduro was elected to the presidency with a mere 1.5% margin of victory. The hand-picked successor to Chavez, Maduro inherited an already sticky situation, which he has only managed to make worse. He has continued the policies of Chavismo, economic socialism created by Hugo Chavez, although many experts view it more as state capitalism which were successful only when supported by high oil revenues. It is estimated that due to the current crisis, inflation in Venezuela will reach 1 million percent, beating up the 2016 record of 800 percent. Through all of this, there are still ardent supporters of the president, and much of the blame is placed upon capitalism and the West for the economic issues in the country. The military continues its support of Maduro, as shown through the variety of events he has been hosting with large crowds of military supporters. However, as you may have seen in the news, not all is well in the country. Since 2017, massive street protests have erupted all over. 
The response to these protests turned deadly many times, with well over 200 people having been killed during them. Just last week, 40 people were killed in protests throughout the country, a number that has not been confirmed by the government. So, what has sparked the most recent round of protests, and where do we go from here? In 2018, Venezuela hosted snap elections, originally scheduled for December, moved around several times with a final date of May 20th, 2018. Many people within the country and around the world have viewed these elections as undemocratic and have refused to recognize them. This includes the European Union, the United States, Canada, the Lima Group, which comprises of Argentina, Brazil, Canada, Chile, Colombia, Costa Rica, Guatemala, Guyana, Honduras, Mexico, Panama, Paraguay, Peru, and St. Lucia, as well as the members of the G7. Antigua and Barbuda, Belarus, Bolivia, China, Cuba, Dominica, Egypt, El Salvador, Iran, North Korea, the Republic of South Africa, Russia, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Syria and Turkey are the countries that have recognized the Maduro government. More importantly, the National Assembly of Venezuela, controlled by the opposition parties, has not recognized the election, as they viewed the process as unfair and undemocratic, seeing the lowest voter turnout in the country's democratic history. This is where Juan Guiado comes in. As the leader of the opposition and the head of the National Assembly, he has galvanized a strong coalition of people against the Maduro government and declared himself, with the backing of the National Assembly, president of Venezuela. As the public face of the movement, his life and liberty are at stake. As he has recently had his assets and passport frozen by the government, has claimed that special police forces have visited his house looking for his wife, and has been subjected to death threats from around the country. You may be asking yourself, how can a person, claiming that there was an undemocratically elected president occupying the position, name himself president without ever having run for the position? What it boils down to is that the National Assembly has not recognized the results of the election. Therefore, in their opinion, the presidency is vacant, and the laws of Venezuela state that the head of the National Assembly takes over in the absence, until new elections can be held. Similar to the secession plans here in the U.S. when the president or a governorship is vacant for any number of reasons. Therefore, the countries who have chosen to not recognize the Maduro government as legitimate have put their support behind Guiado as the rightful current president. The where do we go from here is an interesting question. The situation seems stalemated, and no coalition, either domestic or international, can seem to break it. The real power players in this crisis are the United States, China, Russia, Cuba, and the European Union, as well as the Venezuelan military. They all have different vested interests in seeing the protection or demise of the Maduro government, which means that they are stuck. Unless a solution can be reached by these different parties, the crisis will almost certainly continue to worsen, with the potential for more civilian deaths only to rise. It is interesting that the other regional leaders, Brazil, Argentina, and Colombia, have not been able to prevent this issue from growing in their backyards. However, due to the close ties that Venezuela built through their oil largesse, as well as the own internal struggles of these states, they have not been the strong regional powers they would like to be. Again, unfortunately, the fates of millions of South Americans are at the mercy of global power struggles, not likely resolved soon. There are few options for the U.S. moving forward, none of which are sure to succeed. Many people in the Trump administration have advocated for a military intervention in the region to remove Maduro and promote peace. Colombia would probably allow the U.S. to use it as a base of operations, but the general consensus is that the U.S. would not find a lot of regional support to go down this route, unless things really deteriorate. Another option would be to try to broker peace talks between the countries and the people who have thrown their support behind one faction or the other. This process is sure to be long and drawn out, but does not guarantee success with the myriad of issues and interests that need to be satisfied. The final option is to let things play out on the international stage and see where the pieces fall. This too has its potential and its drawbacks. 
If the U.S. can entice other international actors to step back from the process and let Venezuela create a solution in their own model, this may lead to the longest lasting peace. However, with such divided parties, this route could lead to a bloody civil war on the scale of Syria. In the end, there are a number of factors that have led Venezuela down this path to its own destruction. The governmental policies and the authoritarian nature of the Chavez and Maduro governments have caused a lot of pain and suffering for the people they purport to represent. Without a strong and just response to these issues, the country will continue to falter and perhaps destabilize the region. Smart policies and reactions from the U.S. government can help bring this country back from the brink and chart a new path forward towards a fully functioning and democratic country. On January 23rd, we had the opportunity to sit down with Director General Douglas Sue of the Taipei Cultural and Economic Center in Boston. Take a listen to what we learned. We are here with Director General Douglas Su of the Taipei Economic and Cultural Office in Boston. Welcome. Thank you. Can you give us a little bit of background about yourself? Hi, I'm Douglas Xu, and I'm the Director General of Taipei Economic and Cultural Office in Boston, which is equivalent to Taiwanese consulate covering the uh, New England area. My role is basically like a Consul General of Taiwan. So let's jump right in. Taiwan and China, forever tumultuous relationship. What does the current situation look like? Well, Taiwan and China, of course, are neighbors to each other. And starting from 1949, the nationalist government has relocated to the city of Taipei, representing the Republic of China. So it's different from the People's Republic of China in Beijing on the mainland. For the past few decades, especially uh, after uh, 1988, Taiwan lifted the uh, restriction and allowing people to travel to mainland China. The relation has evolved. I think back in the uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s, well, both sides did not have any uh, interaction with each other, not only on the top level, but we did not have any uh, people-to-people exchanges back then. And after 1988, we allowed our people to travel to uh, mainland China to visit their relatives. And since then, the relations start to uh, develop. We have a lot of uh, Taiwanese people travel to uh, mainland China first to visit their family and then started to, uh, well, invest there, doing business, and then start to study there and maybe uh, have their new family there. So uh, in the past few decades, uh, these cross-trade relations developed quite closely and intensely. But because of the political situation, the top level, Taiwanese government and Chinese government, we does not necessarily talk with each other in, on a regular basis. So the relations is up and down. Every now and then uh, we have conflict because PRC government in Beijing always threat uh, to use force to unify Taiwan. But Taiwan, after those uh, years of separations and develop our own uh, democratic system, well, people definitely doesn't want to be governed or be ruled by an authoritarian region. So that is the uh, differences right now, yes. Chinese President Xi Jinping has been quite vocal about bringing the island back under Chinese direct rule, with his speech in January focused on that idea. But the government of Taiwan has been pushing back. Where do you see the relationship headed, and how do both sides work to a peaceful solution? Well, definitely peaceful resolution is the hope of my government because we are a 
responsible stakeholders in the region. We don't want to cause any uh, instabilities. However, on the other hand, Taiwan is a democracy. All the elected officials in Taiwan well, basically were elected by people. So we have to accommodate uh, what Taiwanese people really want. And we have been living in a democracy for decades. So if we were requested to be unified by mainland China, and become part of it, there's definitely no one in Taiwan would accept that formula. One of the things that the Chinese president stated in that speech was that if there was a peaceful unification, that Taiwan would be administered under the same one country, two systems that Hong Kong is under currently. Is this a viable solution? And if not, what are the challenges that are presented by this? I think after uh, President Xi Jinping made that speech earlier this year, both the uh, ruling party and the opposition party in Taiwan has already publicly uh, figured out that one country, two systems uh, is not a uh, good formula for Taiwanese people. Well, I'm not sure if you visited Taiwan before, but if you had a chance to visit uh, Taiwan, you will understand that Taiwan is just like any uh, democracy or democratic countries in the world. Different NGOs or think tanks around the world already rank Taiwan as one of the most free countries. In Taiwan, we have already enjoyed all the rights we have in a, any democracies. Well, you look in Hong Kong's model, civil rights has been uh, restricted, and the media were censored, and the uh, election apparently are not free enough and not transparent enough. And that is not the Taiwan's case. And that is why I think most of the people in Taiwan, or I think the majority, big majority of the people in Taiwan, do not want to live under that so-called one country, two systems model. Well, even though we are a democracy and we allow different voices in Taipei uh, or Taiwan, because uh, in Taiwan we have uh, many people, we definitely uh, support full-fledged democracies. And I think that is why we don't want to go back to that kind of offer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Moving off the issue, can you tell us a little bit about the current climate in Taiwan? What are the challenges and opportunities? Well, as I say, Taiwan is a full-fledged democracy, so I think just like uh, any uh, problems a democracy country <laughs> may face, people in Taiwan concern most about the economic situations, about their uh, income, and about price of the housing. Well, those are the issues that uh, Taiwanese people concern, just like here in the United <laughs> States. Yeah, and we also care about our uh, retirement, yeah. health care. But fortunately enough, uh, Taiwan is a country that we do have a uh, universal health care, so mm -hmm. people enjoy that uh, <laughs> system. <laughs> You'll be holding presidential elections in 2020. What are going to be the main drivers of this election? Of course, uh, as I say that in any democratic countries, people care about their life, the quality of their life. So uh, no matter who will be able to provide a well, good and bright vision for their own personal life or their families, I think those candidates will definitely win the election. Mm. So I think the main issue for Taiwan voters, the issue they care about is still like uh, economic mm -hmm. and the benefit they will be able to uh, receive after their retirement. So uh, those uh, social issues may still be the main concern. And of course, cross-trade relations is important because uh, it may be the uh, factors that may cause major instabilities in the region. So we definitely want to uh, have a peaceful relations with uh, mainland China. But of course, that is not 
under the terms that <laughs> we were forced to uh, receive. And I think the um, key word is still uh, you have to re uh, respect the willing of Taiwanese people. Mm -hmm. Yes. We were talking a little bit earlier, the U.S. and Taiwan are celebrating their 40th year of official relations. Or unofficial relations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about what they look like now and where those may be headed? Yes, uh, well, this year marks the uh, 40 years anniversary of this uh, Taiwan Relations Act. It is a uh, U.S. legislation after uh, President Jimmy Carter's administration decided to uh, seize uh, the diplomatic relation with Taiwan and turn it to the uh, People's Republic of China in Beijing back in 1979. And after that, U.S. Congress, both House and Senate, passed this uh, very uh, important uh, legislation. It is your uh, domestic law that regulates your bilateral relation with other political entities. In this case, it's Taiwan. And so with that legislation, it helps the uh, Taiwan and the United States be able to uh, develop a uh, very substantial relations in the past 40 years. And of course, in the past 40 years, because this is an unofficial relation that State Department uh, recognized, so there were up and downs in this bilateral relations. But I think in the past, well, 10, 20 years, both sides understand those nuances, and we both have a genuine hope to see these bilateral relations to continue to develop. Uh, economically, Taiwan is the 11th largest trading partners of the United States. Taiwan, as if you look into the map, this is a tiny little <laughs> island on the map. However, it can play such a big role in the uh, uh, trade area with the United States. So you can see how close the, uh, this relations is. And of course, security-wise, uh, United States is only a country that still sell defensive weapons to Taiwan, help us to defend ourselves. And Taiwan, on the other hand, play a, uh, a responsible stakeholders in the Asia-Pacific region. So uh, we definitely will benefit each other with this kind of security uh, exchanges. And politically, even though this is an unofficial relations, but because there are uh, many collaborations and uh, very successful projects uh, in this bilateral relations, so we still help Taiwan and the United States to keep a very important partnership. Well, up to date, we have this a very successful partnership. I think I uh, look forward this bilateral relations will be even more healthier and, well, contribute to both sides in the future. All right, as a final question, injecting some positive news, Last year, Taiwan hosted over 11 million tourists to the island, a record. What's behind the surge in tourism and why should people consider visiting? Well, I think Taiwan is famous for a lot of things. Well, even though this is a tiny island, but we have a lot of beautiful sceneries on the island. And of course, we are famous for our food and cuisine. Well, all kinds of global cuisine you can find better version uh, <laughs> in Taiwan. But I think the most attractive part of Taiwan is our people. There was a little story from uh, one of the friends who recently visited Taiwan. She shared with me that the very first morning after she arrived Taipei, it was uh, like a six o'clock in the morning. She decided to uh, walk. So she and her friend walked uh, in this uh, little community by the uh, hotel and they found there are a lot of elder people practicing uh, Tai Chi and all those kind of uh, morning exercise mm -hmm. in the uh, small park 
And so she was like standing there quietly observing what was happening. Well, these、uh, old ladies at the park were very friendly, inviting her to、uh, join them and practice. And even though the language may be a barrier, <laughs> but from the body language, from the smile, I think. She felt the、uh, friendship, the genuine friendship from these strangers. <laughs> she just found that this small power, and she found that this is the most attractive part of her visit、mm-hmm. in Taiwan. So I think the people is the thing that will continue to attract、uh, visitors to visit Taiwan every year. Well, thank you so much. Again, we're here with Director General Douglas Su from the Taipei Economic and Cultural Office in Boston. Thank you again for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you, Tim. Finally, we had the opportunity to sit down with Farmers First Africa. A local nonprofit working to help farmers in Africa better understand weather analytics to increase their crop production. Here's what we learned. We are here with Emmett Soldati of Farmers First Africa, located out in Dover, New Hampshire. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, happy to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about Farmers First Africa and what you guys do? Yeah, so Farmers First Africa is a nonprofit organization that seeks to support smallholder and subsistence farmers throughout Sub-Saharan Africa, primarily through strengthening their access to weather and climate information to support their productivity on and off the fields. When were you guys founded, and why did you choose Dover as your U.S. base of operations? So we officially launched in 2016, and Farmers First Africa was the brainchild of two organizations. One was a data science company called Weather Analytics, which was based in Dover and Washington D.C., and the other was a crop insurance company called Silvius Crop Insurance. They're out in the Midwest, and Silvius was a client of Weather Analytics. And those early conversations started Farmers First Africa. We had some relationships with folks in a few early countries that we started. One is Central African Republic, and the other is Zimbabwe. And we recognized that though there is a full spectrum of humanitarian and NGOs that supply some component of food security, there was a severe lack when it came to supplying the knowledge that we know a lot of farmers need and rely on. And increasingly, subsistence and smallholder farmers are becoming more vulnerable when they don't know or don't have access to information related to the weather. So the goal there was we should supply weather forecasts to farmers at no cost to them in as many places as possible. So really, a if you teach a man to fish kind of. Exactly. Yeah. Just as an example, and I'll talk more about this country, but we operate in Central African Republic, which is at the lowest end of most development indices in terms of literacy, in terms of health, in terms of political stability. And yet here we are. You know, we are not an emergency relief organization. We are not parachuting aid in. We are seeking longer-term goals in this country. And there is absolutely no infrastructure meteorologically, which means if they have any information about the weather, it's being derived from remote satellites or weather stations in neighboring countries, which doesn't produce high enough resolution information to be to be valuable. There's a lot of things you lose when you go through 
a civil war and a conflict, as CAR has done. Certainly an interest in building up the meteorological infrastructure is not something that is safeguarded or there's much political will to care about. Yet at the same time, food and food security is a linchpin to stability and social cohesion that often gets overlooked. So for us, the goal is always to start by building out their capacity to respond to how they want to use that weather information. So that leads me into my next question. You and I can both pull out our cell phones right now and check the weather. You mentioned that they don't really have the meteorological infrastructure. So what services are you providing that make this worthwhile? So one of the reasons we chose to work in possibly the most difficult country to operate a technology-focused program is because we had a relationship with a shortwave radio station. It's called the Water for Good. Water for Good is a nonprofit that builds wells in Central African Republic. And as part of their program, they have this shortwave radio station. You know, shortwave like AM is, is different from FM in that it has a much wider radius of reach. So if you have a transistor radio in the far reaches of the country, you can still tune in and get a signal and hear what's on air with this radio station. And so for a country with low cell phone penetration, virtually no television, very limited Wi-Fi and internet connectivity outside of the capital city of Bangui, Radio is the means by which people send information. And so in partnership with this radio station, every morning at 6 a.m. local time, we put out a broadcast of the next three days of rain forecasts. Obviously, that's relatively simple. I mean, we could look on our phones today and get 10 different variables out 10 days hourly. But we're talking about a context in which there is currently no such thing as a forecast. A lot of folks, when we started broadcasting three-day rain forecasts, kind of came back and said, we don't even plan out two days or one day. You know, it's very much for the, those that live in a sort of subsistence fashion. They have a lot of decisions they need to make about their daily planning. And so we started introducing a variable that kind of captures a lot of what might change their behavior. So that helps introduce a level of planning that currently does not exist in the country. And so that goes out every day at six in the morning and that gets sent to right now 11 different communities, although everyone can listen to it. And our goal is to continue in 2019 to expand that to 50 communities. Very nice. You've mentioned civil war as a big issue for yeah. particularly Central African Republic, but also I'm sure weather patterns have been, been changing over time. Have these countries been having the effects of climate change or has it always been sort of a volatile weather environment? Well, there's so many factors. So when it comes to talking about the effects of climate change, you can definitely see it even in countries like CAR. We work with the Ministry of Agriculture and CAR, and there are no doubts about the effects of climate change and desertification. I mean, they know that the desert is creeping more and more south. I mean, CAR is an interesting country. It is, as its namesake, in the center of Africa, and the northern tip of it is in the Sahelian Desert. The southern tip of it is like the lush rainforest that you sort of picture with lots of flora and fauna, and that is changing. You know, the things that are driving local climate change in places like CAR have as much to do with the deforestation caused by folks foraging for wood, burning it for coal, as much as it has to do with sort of a global conversation mm -hmm. around emissions and a rising global temperature. 
So you've talked a little bit about the state of Central African Republic. Can you give us a little bit of background history on how they've gotten themselves to this point? Yeah, my background in anthropology and in the nonprofit space has led me to learn and understand a lot about the, the folks there. I'm by no means a Central African sure. historian, but by getting to know the people and the farmers there, you kind of deeply get to know their history. So Central African Republic, it is a former French colony that declared independence in the 1950s. Central African Republic is a little bit of a sad story where it started with a leader who sought prosperity for the country and was assassinated. And that led to really a string of coups on coups on coups. And there have been political ethnic factions in the country that also have quasi-religious undertones to them. And after sort of some of these retaliations and coups that took place in the early 2000s, the biggest eruption of sort of militia activity was in 2013, and it basically led to a genocide of a largely Muslim population, and that devastated the country. You know, I think another, and this goes sort of deeper into the post-colonial narrative, the French never invested in its colony in the way that, you know, maybe some other colonial powers did, and it was always considered a resource extraction country. And so even before the coups and the Civil War, there there was not a lot of infrastructure. And so even after this ravaging Civil War, there's one paved road in the entire country. There is very limited telecom connectivity. You'll be happy if you get a 2G signal on a hill somewhere. That said, I mean, the people there do feel that they are on a transition to peace. You know, I think one of the things we saw, which is what kind of makes the work we do rewarding for us, is when you do go through this kind of crisis and you do go through this kind of conflict and civil war, it pushes people to the fields because at the end of the day, you know, if you lose your job, you have to feed yourself and feed your family. So a lot of people got pushed onto the land uh, out of necessity and out of survival. And again, this is why, and there's a lot of research into this, food security and food access are really crucial for people. So it sounds like you guys have a great mission and are doing great work around the world. What is the grand goal for Farmers First? Our goal is making sure that farmers understand that this is a project that seeks to have a lasting impact and carry with them. And that's why we're partnering with the Ministry of Agriculture. That's why we're partnering with the World Food Program. That's why we're partnering with the University of Bangui to build up capacity for longer term development of this program. I think once we kind of crack the nut on building that trust and that relationship, then for us, it's about scale. It's okay. You know, we're reaching tens of thousands of farmers in a dozen communities. How do we up the ante now that the folks know that this is a legitimate, consistent, accurate, and timely source of information? How can we expand? And so we would seek to look for other ways once we can build a portfolio of farmers that really rely and and trust what we're providing. We would look for other ways that we can support them. You know, I think one thing that I'll just sort of add at the end that kind of gets lost when we talk about farmers is we focus so much on the agricultural specific activity of a farmer. One thing that CAR has definitely illuminated is nobody is just a farmer, particularly in places where there is 
severe economic depression, everyone has at least three jobs. Everyone is a farmer. Everyone probably has to manage someone else's farm in their family. Most people are shopkeepers. Most people have to forage for wood. In CAR, there's a particular caterpillar that's considered a delicacy that they can sell for good price. And so being a farmer is waking up every day and knowing that you have to make more decisions than you humanly can do. It's always a gamble because maybe some NGO has supplied you seeds and you decide, okay, well, I have the seeds now. I'm going to go plant them. And you just missed out on the best season to go forage for caterpillars. Or maybe the place that you were going to collect timber and, and lumber has already sort of been pilfered because you spent it doing something else. And so it's not enough to just provide a single good and expect farmers to do what farmers do. So our goal really is to look at that broader picture of supporting farmer productivity. At the core, we really need to start with building trust in these farming communities. Well, it sounds like you've got plenty to keep you busy over the next couple of years. For sure, for so sure. that's good. Thank you so much for taking the time to come out and talk with us. Again, we're here with Emmett Soldati of Farmers First Africa. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to our second Global in the Granite State podcast. To find out more information about the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, please visit our website at www.wacnh.org. There you can find out more about our International Visitor Leadership Program, sign up for events, and become a member of our organization. Also, you can provide any feedback about this podcast and what you would like to see in the future.